Welcome to another episode of the Doctors and Dollars podcast, where we discuss health insights and wealth secrets. I'm your host, Nate Crannell, joined today by Dr. Sina Smith. Dr. Smith is a medical doctor and NCCAOM certified licensed acupuncturist who is also trained in homeopathic, integrative, culinary, and functional medicine, and has three advanced degrees in physiology and biophysics, medical education, and acupuncture. She was the founding director of integrative and culinary medicine at SIU School of Medicine before returning to private practice as the founder and medical director of Chicago Healing Center to teaching at the UIC College of Medicine. She is also a noted international speaker, author, and educator, having delivered over 100 professional talks, lectures, and keynote addresses. Welcome to Doctors and Dollars, Dr. Smith. What's going well today? Thanks so much for having me, Nate. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful day in Chicago today, and uh, I was very inspired to get up and like exercise for 45 minutes, so I feel strong and powerful and ready for the day. Oh, I am jealous. My alarm went off uh, at 6.30, which is my, it's like in all caps says, get up and move, and I went up and, and went downstairs and fed the dog and then looked at Instagram for a little bit, so I'm a little <laughs> guilty that I did not have, have the perseverance that you did this morning, uh, but we'll, we'll knock out a half hour on the Peloton. Uh, this afternoon, that's, maybe. That's what my morning was like yesterday. I did exactly the same thing. <laughs> Just got to roll with what your body wants. You bet. Well, uh, you're in Chicago. I'm in Des Moines. We're, we're relatively close. We are feeling the 20 degree weather. Uh, we've got a couple inches of snow on the ground. What's kind of your workout routine when it is this cold? Are you just trying to warm the body up? Do you get outside and just cold plunge? What, what What's your routine? Well, I'm very fortunate. I live in the city and my gym is um, one block and across the street from me. So um, I do have to bundle up to get over to the gym, but then there's this nice transition of very, very cold air that cools me down uh, on my way back home. Um, and it's a good sized gym. I do like to try to swim a little bit more in the wintertime because I feel like that's a great way to get the metabolism up sort of all sure. over the body. Um and I do a lot of inclined bike as a warm up for doing a lot of weightlifting. Um, I also have a, an office space where I have kind of a, an in-home space that I can do some exercise regimens and stuff like that in there. So that's what I did this morning because it's definitely chilly. And I, I was ready to exercise, but I was not ready to face 20 degrees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you obviously have a, a degree in physiology and biophysics. So this is kind of right on par with it. What, what does it do for the body to... You bundle up warm, then you run outside and you're cold and then you get into the gym, you get sweat all over your body and then you're right back in the cold again, walking back home. Is that shock kind of, is that good for the body? There's some interesting research out there that's showing that um, exposure to cold boosts the immune system. Mm -hmm. And um, I am forgetting now the, the name of Wim Hof, the Wim Hof method. Um, there's a lot in, in his book that talks about this kind of thing and gradual exposure to varying degrees of cold and intensity for longer and longer periods of time, uh, boosting the immune system. So I do use that really intentionally as I'm going back and forth to the gym. Um, my husband is a little bit more crazy about it because he will run back and forth to the gym in shorts. Um, I'm not quite that brave. I want pants on my legs before I go to the gym. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting the the way that the immune system um, builds up in response to cold, which is then the time of the year when we're surrounded by more, you know, viral and uh, viral kinds of infections that we would call colds and flus. 
So the, the body is kind of amazing that way. It just adapts to the weather and, uh, and responds to those seasonal changes to keep our, our bodies healthy. For sure. And, and part of that Dimhoff method or theory is uh, that cold shock, right? Are you a believer in, in the, the cold plunge, the, the ice baths that you, you see all over social media now is, is kind of taken off? Is that physiologically there's got to be a reason everyone's doing it, or is it just a, a social media trend? It is a social media trend, but uh, when I lived in Germany, you know, 30 years ago, that was still a part of kind of healthy bathing and going to bathhouses and so forth um, is all the different temperatures of, of the different plunges. And um, from a Chinese medicine perspective, it's also really interesting because that yin-yang balance, that cold heat balance, stimulates movement. Um, it's it's very similar to the weather patterns, right? Whenever you've got hot air and cold air and they start to mix, then that creates wind and that creates our weather. So the same sort of idea um, applies to bodies in Chinese medicine, um, that moving the qi, moving the blood, moving the yin, moving the yang creates balance, and that helps us to be more healthy. Interesting. I, yeah, I would have never thought of it that way as, as far as the competing factors of it truly kind of they complement each other. They're not, you know, competing with each other, I think is the best way to, to think of it that way. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Speaking of, of, of the yin and the yang, uh, I want to dive right in because I, your story is fascinating. What you used to do to what you do now and, and where your specialties lie are very vast. I mean, you could tell in the, in the bio that I read, <laughs> uh, you're a very smart lady in a lot of different areas, which I think is super cool. The yin and the yang, though, I want to start with is you used to do surgery. Now your primary focus is on acupuncture. Very, very different things. How did you make that transition from surgery to acupuncture? Yeah, it was, um, I was kind of all teed up to do academic medicine. Um, my first degree was in physiology and biophysics. And then during my um, surgery training. I did the master's in medical education. I did a fellowship in surgical education at the same time. And so I was ready to do research and teach and, and be an academic surgeon. And in um, surgery training, it's about five years long. And I was at the tail end of my fourth year and developed a repetitive stress injury from doing surgery. Mm. And the more I tried to do um, wrist cock-up splints and, you know, like, immobilizing them and doing steroid shots and all that kind of thing, nothing really worked for my pain. And it was quite excruciating. Um, it got to the point where my right arm, I couldn't move it at all because of the pain. Was it an and, elbow uh, or shoulder? Or? No, it's called radial tunnel syndrome. Um, okay. So it's the radial nerve that comes out here and does all these kinds of motions. So this is there's 13 muscles in your forearm on this side and all of those extensor uh, functions of the forearm come kind of from the radial nerve. And uh, it's kind of like the carpal tunnel where you have the little um, little extensor retinaculum is the, the technical term for it mm -hmm. underneath there so that you can, these pulleys that are moving your wrist don't pop out whenever you pop your wrist uh, forward or backward. Mm -hmm. And in any case, that little area got very, very inflamed. Um, and so I saw a couple of different hand surgeons. I really tried everything. And Finally, somebody said to me, why don't you try acupuncture? And I was like, well, I got nothing to lose. And I was quite blown away by it. Um, laid down on the acupuncture table for the first time. And it was the first time in over six weeks that I had any relief at all for my pain. Um, and 
when I started kind of reading about it and trying to figure out what was going on, because at this point I felt like I had a pretty good understanding about how the body worked and how it was put together. And this was crazy because he's putting needles like in my legs to fix my arm. Like there's, there are no nerves that connect that way. There are no, you're not even going right in. Fascinating. No, 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 no. There was stuff kind of going into my toes. And, um, and I just became really, really fascinated with it. And the acupuncture was helpful, but it was not enough to get me the function back that I could finish that last 14 months of my surgery training. So it was like, okay, well, I've got all these degrees, but I can't work in a hospital because I can't finish the last little chunk of my training. Um, I can't really teach at an academic center because I can't finish the last 14 months of my training. Like now, what am I going to be when I grow up? Mm -hmm. Um, And I was 39 by that point. So it was pretty terrifying to have that crushing amount of debt and like, you know, some kind of piecemeal things that were held together with medical uh, training. And now the medical training is just, you know, um, yep. obviously I still had the M- MD, but I couldn't, couldn't specialize. And uh, so I, I went to a, a class on for medical doctors about acupuncture and it was not a good fit. It was quite superficial. And so I said, well, okay, I'm going to go to acupuncture school. And um, we sold our house and we, my husband sold his business and we moved from Illinois to Los Angeles so that I could go to acupuncture school. And it was quite a crazy transition, but that's how I ended up there. (laughs) That's an amazing story. Uh, Unfortunate that it had to happen. I mean, obviously your passion for years, I mean, to not, to get to that point and be 39 I mean, that's a good chunk of your professional career, accumulating degrees um, like they're candy, which is great. That's awesome. I mean, <laughs> like I said earlier, you're obviously super smart if you can do that. But It's a little pathological. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's, yeah. There's a little bit of a problem there. <laughs> hey, that's all right. Shout out to your husband for for being willing to sell the business, move halfway across the country to Southern California, which in his mind, he's probably like, Southern California <laughs> beats Chicago area. Uh but that's such an interesting story and and a unique story. I can't imagine that there's anyone out there like you that that had that journey, had that road partially because of a of an injury to to get to that point. So you you, get, you go to chiropractic school in LA or not chiropractic school, excuse me, acupuncture school. Uh you get done with that then is it is it back to Illinois? Tell me a little bit about your journey after that. Yeah, while I was in LA, um you know, there's lots of, uh, of, shall we say, on the forefront of integrative and, and alternative medicine kinds of mm-hmm. things happening on the coasts. And um, I had just gotten out of doing rotations as a medical school student when you're kind of exploring all the different areas. You spend a month doing this and a month doing this and a month doing this. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to put myself through some little uh, training program to try to learn about all the different integrative therapies that are out there. And at the time, there weren't really any training programs or any that I knew about where I could learn integrative medicine. And I really didn't even have a word for that. But mm-hmm. I wanted to know what cranial ther- cranial sacral therapy was. And I wanted to learn about colon hydrotherapy. And I wanted to learn about aromatherapy. And I wanted to learn about anything that was kind of a little woo-woo and weird and a little outside scope of what I'd been training in, in the conventional medical paradigm for the last, you know, 10 years. So um, I would reach out to various practitioners and say, you know, can I spend some time with you? Here's my background. Here's what I'm interested in learning. And they would just let me. Um, Mm -hmm. It was quite amazing. So I had all these little 
tutelage sessions that I set up for myself while I was in acupuncture school. And then I was also teaching in the acupuncture school and for a plasma phoresis company at the same time to, to support myself. So there were, it was kind of also the beginning of learning like, well, what else can I do with a medical degree? That's not being, you know, a doctor. Um, And, uh, and so that also became quite a, quite a journey. So from acupuncture, there's a huge emphasis on dietetics. And I got very, very interested in culinary medicine, which is kind of the link between um, how food works in the body and nutrition science and that kind of thing with how do you cook and prepare food. Um, Mm. And I got interested in integrative medicine, which is the use of conventional and unconventional things together. Um, And that was kind of the beginning of the, the jumping off point into these next phases of my life. So when you when you talk through integrative medicine, and then you introduce culinary medicine, what are the differences there? What are the what are the similarities there to to where you can use some of those integrative techniques, but also some of the culinary techniques to to provide a treatment to someone, or even just to help you better understand how the body works? Yeah, great question. In in the beginning, it was really hard. <laughs> to put aside my biomedical training and switch into um, other medical paradigms. It it literally never occurred to me that there would be different ways of putting the body together other than anatomy and physiology. Mm -hmm. I I just had no perspective on that whatsoever. And it took conservatively several years for me to really realize that the acupuncture points are not just anatomical locations that are doing a thing because of the nerves and the muscles that are innervating or surrounding that particular area. There's a lot more to it than that. Um, and it allowed me to, to kind of start exploring things from a place of humility instead of, well, I know all this, so I'm just going to add a little bit more knowledge. It was more coming to it um, in, a, in a childlike, humble way that allowed mm-hmm. me to really start understanding traditional East Asian medicine in a deeper way. And so kind of coming back to your question about what's the difference between culinary medicine and integrative medicine. Culinary, like I said, is using the the understanding that we have about how food works in the body. So not just macronutrients, but where do you need the B12 to go? And what is methylation and, and how does that kind of thing affect the foods that we're eating? And how rich is the soil that the food was grown in so that you can get mm. the nutrients, not just the macros, but the micronutrients that you need, the minerals and the other things that are kind of transferred from the soil into you as a human through the food that you're eating. And then we don't have home ec anymore, right? So people don't mm-hmm. know how to cook. And so culinary medicine also teaches people how to chop an onion. How do you, you know, prepare a carrot? How, how do you put those things together? How do you make a sauce so that when you're trying to use food in a different way and not just purchase it already pre-prepared, but cook it for yourself, how can you maximize the micronutrients? How can you maximize the micronutrients or the, uh, the macros and the micros? How can you get the most nutritional value out of your food based on the cooking methods that you choose? And of course, they've done studies on this, that when medical doctors and other practitioners know how to cook, the outcomes of their patients get better because they have conversations with their patients about food and they brainstorm with their patients about how they can trade in their, you know, McDonald's breakfast sandwich for making some egg bites at home. 
and putting more vegetables and protein into their diet first thing in the morning that then sustains them much more than a donut does. So it's, it's really interesting and a very powerful tool. Um, then I feel like I'm talking too much, but no, to answer good. the rest of your question about integrative medicine, you're it's good. like I said, using things that are conventional with unconventional. So if somebody is going for cancer treatment, for example, you can, if you say the person is using alternative medicine, then they're not using anything from a biomedical field. They're not having any surgery. They're not having any chemotherapy. They're not having any radiation. And they're only doing things that are outside of the conventional norm. That's alternative medicine, one mm -hmm. alternative to another. Or you can use complementary medicine, where if you're going for chemo and radiation, you might also use acupuncture because that's going to help with all the side effects of the chemo and radiation. Yeah. So those are complements mm -hmm. of each other. When you see an integrative practitioner, you're getting the best of both worlds, in my opinion, at the same time. Because I know biomedicine, but I also know functional medicine and integrative medicine or uh, acupuncture and traditional East Asian medicine and culinary medicine. So I can kind of choose which hat to put on based on what's happening for you in this moment. That is fascinating. I mean, I have like 20 questions, but uh, <laughs> like, as you were just talking, I think that's, I've always been a big believer that that food is medicine. I mean, that's a big thing in our house. I mean, my wife and I love eggs. My kids aren't too fond of them. We're like, you got to eat eggs. Like you have to put a good protein source in your body in the morning. We need to cook. Like last night we made grilled cheese and, and tomato basil soup, hundred percent homemade. Like instead of going to the store where you buy it in the box where it's got 25 ingredients, bought Roma tomatoes, but you know, Parmesan cheese, all those things and put it all together and just uh, teaching our kids that that's you got to put that type of stuff in your body versus the the donut or the McDonald's to then bring in, you know, conventional medicine uh, and conventional therapies and say, hey, maybe this is if you're doing this or in lieu of doing this, here's some other alternative ways to do it. I think it's just fascinating because I'm also a big believer that that God put our bodies together in a certain way and it all is supposed to work. And so bringing in certain types of medicines you know, can inhibit that it can, you know, I'm, I'm on a soapbox now, but I, I love the way that you tie integrative medicine and, and culinary medicine and acupuncture together. Those are three very unique things. The culinary medicine, I didn't even know existed until I started doing some research on you. Uh, I was like, that's just fascinating to now understand what culinary medicine means. Um, you know, where does the B12 go? Like that, that would be one of my questions. <laughs> We're supposed to have B12. I know that, you know, if you take certain uh, proteins and supplements, you also have to take another type of protein or supplement to make sure that it gets to the certain point in your body. Otherwise it doesn't. Um, right. So you'll forgive me for I, going I off camera for just a second. This is how it works. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that looks so like the I map. That looks like the map of a high school. <laughs> that is that is my biochemistry map that I have on the wall. When I started studying functional medicine, um, which is kind of the, I kind of call it the gateway drug for, uh, for my clinical colleagues who are interested in getting into something that's a little bit off track. It's mm -hmm. very biochemistry heavy. Um, and we do study biochemistry in medical school, but this is what, what happens to that B12. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And what is methylation? And why do I need glutathione? And when I'm taking a statin, why do I need to take CoQ10? How does that work biochemically in the body? And the key to all of it 
again, in my opinion, is the microbiome. Mm-hmm. So when you were talking about giving your kids healthy foods, like you're setting up their microbiome to be healthy for the rest of their lives. So Good. nice job. Awesome. Like seriously, it, the more we're understanding about the, the tropical rainforest that lives in our colon and on our skin and in our ears and like all over your body, you, you can't think about it too much because it gets a little, you know, creepy. Um, but the, the microbiome in particular interacts with our immune system in a supportive way, not just an antagonistic way. And some of the really interesting things, like you were commenting on this picture that I have on the wall before we got started. I was just going to bring it up about, again. <laughs> it's all about leaky gut and how that works. But, you know, the food that we eat, the reason that fiber is important is that we don't digest it in our small intestine and then it transitions down into the large intestine. The bacteria that live in the large intestine eat the fiber and make something called short chain fatty acids as a waste product on their mm-hmm. side. Then the cells that line our colon, the enterocytes, eat the short chain fatty acids. So we eat fiber, the bacteria process it for it, transform it into something that we can use, and then that becomes the main food source for the enterocytes. Isn't Mm -hmm. that amazing? That is crazy. Talk about a symbiotic relationship, right? Yeah, rainforest. It's absolutely cool. And yeah, the more, the more diversity that you have in your tropical rainforest, the more you're able to kind of deal with whatever is coming at you. So it's, it's really, really fascinating. The, the functional medicine piece has been a really exciting um, addition to my medical practice over the last three or four years. Um, and I just, I find that it is the, the final key for me to unlocking all the different things that are happening in people's bodies. Cool. Well, I want to do a comparison for you then. So uh, for the people listening on Spotify who can't see the video, uh, Dr. Smith has a a drawing of a stomach into, I believe that would be then what, the pancreas? Uh, the you have the colon intestine. in there, some, some small yep. intestine, drawn on a whiteboard behind her. Uh, and, and we were talking offline, she was drawing out what, what leads to leaky gut syndrome. So comparison here, how would you treat leaky gut syndrome from a functional medicine standpoint? And then how may a conventional doctor if, if somebody went into their their primary care provider or, or a specialist uh that that deals with I, I believe that's endocrinology i might be wrong but uh how might somebody in that field treat it versus how you would treat it with functional medicine yeah and what i'm finding in my practice is that a lot of people that are labeled with ibs so irritable bowel syndrome mm-hmm. have at least some components of leaky gut so ibs is kind of this catch-all thing that is characterized by bloating and gas and indigestion and not really knowing what foods you can eat. And every time you try to eat something, then sometimes it's okay. And other times it's not. And people just have a lot of food confusion as a consequence of that. Mm -hmm. And they feel, you know, foggy and heavy and, and not able to to concentrate and focus. And all of those things are happening, um, not exclusively, but one diagnosis that we can kind of put all of that together with is leaky gut. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you see a conventional medical practitioner, they're not really thinking about it in the same way that we are in functional medicine land. Um, They're kind of diagnosing IBS and they will probably send you to a nutritionist or to a, uh, an RD to a, um, sorry, a registered dietitian. 
mm-hmm. um, to do some counseling. They might recommend a food journal. They might recommend that you see an allergist or an immunologist if your white blood cells are high. Um, but there's really not a lot of solutions for IBS. And when we look at kind of what is happening from a biochemical perspective, and I'm going to roll back here for those that can see me on YouTube, we've got the esophagus here and then the stomach. And in the first part of the small intestine is a receptor that's called TLR4, toll, T-O-L, like receptor 4. And that's a, a sentinel receptor that responds to something called lipopolysaccharide, which is a chemical messenger made by gram-negative bacteria. And generally, gram-negative bacteria cause a lot of problems in our bodies. Hey, everyone. I wanted to take a moment to talk about what I do outside of being the host of the Doctors and Dollars podcast. I'm the CFO of Grand Vision Capital Group. At Grand Vision, we work with high-income earners who make a great living but still can't quite break through that true wealth ceiling. We utilize strategically chosen investments tailored for high-income earners. The question always at the forefront of our minds is, why wait for retirement to finally live when you can implement an investment strategy that will impact your life today? To be honest, most of the people we work with never even knew these options existed because their financial planner doesn't have access to these exclusive investments. So if you're ready to finally turn your high income into real wealth, visit our website, www.grandvision.co, and hit the Take Action button in the top right corner to schedule some time with me. Or even better, connect, follow me on any of my social media accounts, shoot me a message. Now, back to the show. So if we eat something that has a lot of gram-negative bacteria in it, the stomach registers that. It tries to kill it off with a, a stomach acid where we get the pH down to two. But then if it can't kill it off, it goes through the tube and rolls past these TLR4 receptors, these toll-like receptors. And they say, we need to do something about that. And as we go downstream, the cells have a tight junction in between them. And what they do is separate a little bit and allow lots and lots of fluid to wash into the tube of the gut and try Mm. to wash those bacteria out. Okay. So that's why our bodies evolved to have this. But the problem is that other kinds of things will activate that toll-like receptor number four. If we eat a lot of sugar in our diet, we get a little bit of a yeast overgrowth. And then those toll-like receptors, instead of being at a set point of zero and then go up to 10 when they get that, you know, uh, lipopolysaccharide signal, they're kind of at a three. They're kind of at a code yellow or a code orange all the time. And it doesn't take very much to boost them up. Inhibited a little bit because of the sugar. No, 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 no. Overexcited. Oh, overexcited, not inhibited. Okay. They're not, yeah, they're not down to their baseline. They're kind of a little bit like on edge, right? Mm. They've They've had a little too much coffee. And then the other thing that binds to those is gluten. Um, and so when, and that's universal, everybody has a little bit of a gluten sensitivity. It's, it's a, it's a hyperactivity, uh, kind of a caffeine stimulator to those toll-like receptors. So then the things that you eat downstream, instead of the fluid washing into the lumen, this becomes more of a two-way street. So there's a Mm. little bit of space. There's a little bit of a possibility of leak, not going just into the to the space of the tube, but also going back into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. So whatever you eat, there's a little bit of almond, there's a little bit of carrot, there's a little bit of McDonald's cheeseburger that gets into the bloodstream side and starts to activate the immune system. And now all of a sudden you're making antibodies to 
things that shouldn't be that you shouldn't have antibodies to, right? Sure. Yep. So then every time you eat something, depending on which blood uh, B cells and T cells come in contact with the little bit of almond or the little bit of carrot, sometimes you're you're really bloated and gassy and your body's trying to get rid of the evil carrot that has invaded the system. And other times you bypass that area and it's okay. So it becomes very, very confusing. And what we have to do is heal the gut tube lining. Gotcha. So, so it starts right out from, from the stomach. Yeah. We got to yeah, start right exactly. there before it gets anywhere else. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So we have to do an elimination diet, eat things that are only, well, that are not irritating, that would have known to be not irritating. And usually I determine what those things are for each individual person by doing food sensitivity testing. We mm -hmm. check their bloodstream and see what they're making antibodies to. And then we eliminate those foods from the diet so that the immune system can calm down. And then we repair the gut wall so that that barrier is back in place and you're not having leaky gut anymore. And then we can reintroduce those foods because if the tube is intact, then the immune system is not seeing carrot and almond. Mm -hmm. What is, what would treatment like? Just say a moderate case of leaky gut syndrome. You go through this, you do teach fantastic uh presentation there that was awesome like i <laughs> learned so much I, I always try and learn something new every day today this was it uh and it's only 10 in the morning so this is awesome uh what would what, what's the time frame look like for someone who comes in um you, you can clearly tell that it's leaky gut you, you kind of walk through the here's kind of what's happening to your body and here's what we need to do to treat that someone who comes in with a moderate case of it to then having no symptoms what does that time frame look like Six months. It takes some. It... it takes some time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Three to six months. This is not something that can happen overnight because it's a big inflammatory cascade that has happened, and it just takes some time for the body to heal, you mm -hmm. know, and to to calm down because the immune system is trying to protect you from the evil parrots that are attacking your body, right? It doesn't have eyes. It doesn't know that this is mm -hmm. actually, you know, a lovely carrot salad that you've eaten. It sees that as a pathogen. Yep. And so to retrain the body in the same way that we would allergy shots or anything along those lines, it just takes some time to collaborate with the immune system in that way and help it to, to not react as strongly to other things. And it's not as though those B cells and T cells go away. Part of the, the spectacularness, I would say, of our immune system is that it has memory. Mm. But we have to put a barrier between the cells that are interacting uh, with the foods that we're eating and not. We have to reclaim that nice thick wall um, of, of mucus and other substrates that are, sure. that are decreasing the inflammatory reaction. So not necessarily and, sorry, and a lot of times I find that we also have to clean up the microbiome. Oh, for sure. Because that is also contributing to the, to it's the been tainted a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your ecosystem is not quite healthy. For sure. So my, the word that comes to mind is like, that's the healthier way to do it. I'm sure there's a much better medical term to say, Hey, to stretch this out over a six month period or something to rejuvenate the system in a more time efficient and effective way is better for the body. Because obviously, like you said, our bodies were designed to do things in a certain way. And so we're just kind of guiding it along versus there's probably some type of treatment out there that is like shock the system, flush everything out, you know, start from scratch. I'm, I'm guessing there's some type of treatment out there that does that. That is just not 
good? Well, um, so I would say that conventional medicine has not um, embraced this idea yet. For example, when I was in medical school, fibromyalgia was not a diagnosis. Oh, so pretty big thing now. It takes some, yeah, exactly. It takes some time for medicine to decide, yes, this is a thing, and for that to permeate the thoughts and ideas and differential diagnoses of all conventional me- medical practitioners. And so I would say that my understanding is, not being a gastroenterologist or in practice with gastroenterologists, that people who are working and functioning with the gut in a conventional paradigm are starting to learn about leaky gut, but they're also very, um, they're also very skeptical right? They yep. don't, they, they're, they're very, very cautious about making sure that there is good evidence base behind it, that there is good scientific research, that there is good biochemistry, that these things, you know, you can get from point A to point B to point D, you know, and so forth down the line. So it's, it's getting there. But as we do more and more research, then we convert more and more people to understanding that this is what's going on. Yeah, which I think is so, just a, it, so you're good. I'm sorry. I think- I'm so that the answer to your question, again, is that there really isn't anything from conventional medicine that would do the same kind of thing, because they, they're not thinking about restructuring the microbiome. We just are starting to think about probiotics as treatment for acne. We're just starting to think about probiotics and, and how they can interact with heart disease. Um, so it's, it's getting there, but it's taking some time. Sorry, Nate, go ahead. No, you're good. And that was uh, apologies for interrupting you because that was a really good thought there at the end. Uh, I was just going to say, there, I think in medicine, there's just always a reluctance to accept, right? You go back to the 1800s and where medicine was there and the transformation that we've had in the last, you know, call it 200 years. Along the way, there was multiple times where there's been reluctance to accept the next thing. Um, cancer was probably a thing, you know, before we saw it was cancer and then you know, it was there's all the different treatments and therapies that have come about even in the last 50 years have have changed, but they started, I'm sure, with some reluctance to accept it. Uh, and so I think it's really cool that that you have that understanding of how the human body works from the fun- functional medicine space, but you also understand the conventional ways and, and how a gastroenterologist might look at it. And so I think this is going to be one of those things where the more and more evidence and data that's out there to support what you are working on is is going to bring it more to the forefront and that reluctance to accept will will diminish then yeah i think that's absolutely true but i think it's appropriate for conventional medicine to be leery you know sure um that's that's we have all been been drilled uh, evidence-based medicine evidence-based medicine which means is there literature to support the steps that you're taking because 50, 60 years ago, people were practicing the same way that they did when they got out of medical school. And so Mm -hmm. there wasn't a strong push to continue to learn throughout your medical career about the new things that were coming in. So that got, you know, older doctors get a lot of experience, but 50% of what you learn in medical school is obsolete after 10 years. That totally makes sense. You've yep. spent all this time learning stuff. And if you're not pushed to continue to learn and to critically evaluate the medical literature, then you're, you get behind. You just mm-hmm. don't know what the new modern hotness is anymore. Gotcha. That makes sense. Are you, 
because I'm still kind of blown away with with everything that you just talked through with with leaky gut and uh, for everyone that can see the video, the presentation with the left hand and uh, underneath. <laughs> are you still teach e even though you're not in academic medicine anymore? Are you still teaching? Yeah, I do um, what's called a grand rounds or a keynote kind of a speech at least mm -hmm. once a month, most of the time too. Um, and I, I speak for the DOD. I, um, I have a lecture next week, actually, for the Department of Defense. Um, I gave a three-hour uh, workshop for the Veterans Association in the fall. So yeah, I still do a lot of teaching and, ed and education. That's one of my big passions. You're very proficient at it. I will give you that. That's, you're <laughs> Thank good. you. Lots of practice. <laughs> yeah. So, so still participating in that, uh, going from conventional medicine into integrative and culinary medicine, continuing to teach, which clearly is a passion of yours. It was something that even pre age 39 that you had full intention to do. Like if you could go back and talk to yourself again at 25, you know, as a medical student or as, as a resident, uh, what would you tell yourself from a, like, Hey, take this path. You're really good at it. Or here's something new that, you know, as a 25 year old, isn't really popular, but man, you're going to get really good at it. What, what would you tell yourself if you could go back to 25 year old Cena? You know, I think, um, most people that, that have a good sense about what they want to do. And, and you kind of have to have that when you go into medicine of any kind, not just, you know, an MD, but anybody who wants to do medical training, you have to know that sort of in your undergraduate time so that you get the grades that, and you take the right classes and yada, yada, yada. But the problem with that is that there's not time for exploration. And I think one of the best things that I did do that I would coach myself to do again is to take undergrad slow. When I graduated from high school, it was 1989, which has been a minute, but that was the fall of the Berlin Wall and German mm. reunification. And my dad was in the military, so I graduated from high school in Belgium. And then I went to college for the first three years in Munich. So I watched wow. that happen firsthand. And I took study tours where I studied Russian literature in Russia. I went on study tours and studied geology in Italy. And there were all kinds of opportunities to learn lots and lots of different things. So I, I think one of the big problems with our education system right now is that undergrad is so expensive. College is so expensive that kids don't have time to really explore mm -hmm. and to, to learn all the different things that make a liberal arts education just fantastic. Um, and so for me, the, the change and being able to pivot in my life has come from that foundational understanding that I have the capacity to learn a lot of different things, that I'm interested in a lot of different things. And if it hadn't worked out in acupuncture, I probably would be a chef or I might be a professional seamstress or I might, you know, there's, there's a lot maybe. of other things. <laughs> there's a lot of other things that I could still find pleasure and curiosity and delight in learning about for the rest of my life because I had a, a liberal arts education. Yeah. Would you still tell yourself, because right now you are in private practice. So instead of the the traditional way, and, and I think most of our listeners know, like most doctors are employees of, you know, the academic medical system, a clinic, a hospital, kind of that W-2, uh, you know, my, that's where my financial brain goes. You're a W-2 employee of, of, of an institution. But you're in private practice and small business. If you could go back and tell yourself, hey, 
explore more, use that undergrad degree, go out and go still get three degrees like you have now. Would you still tell yourself to get into private practice sooner than you did? Well, I, I started in private practice when I left surgery in 2009. Okay. Um, and so I was in private practice for about six, seven years before going into academic medicine for three and a half and then coming back to private practice. And then you went back. Okay. And there's, there's definitely good and, and bad about both of those things. Um, certainly, I think the big frustration of my colleagues that are, that are in academic centers or are working for somebody else is that they feel kind of trapped. They don't have a lot of, um, they don't feel empowered to make decisions around the practice. You know, they're being told how many patients they have to see. They're being told which EHR they're going to use. There's not a lot of customization. There's not a lot of, I work better from three in the afternoon until nine o'clock at night. Everybody has to be there at the crack of dawn. Not everybody is a morning person. You know, Mm -hmm. there's just not a lot of flexibility. And those are the pieces that I really love about being in private practice. I can design my own EHR and it does exactly what I want it to. It's brilliant. But I unfortunately do not have a business degree. <laughs> and that is really scary. <laughs> so, so your knowledge and your expertise is really, really helpful to somebody who's in my position because having somebody who knows how to do the books and how the taxes get filed and how much percentage I need to charge for sales tax on things and, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. That was a huge learning curve going into private practice. Um, And so I wish that I had had more uh, knowledge and information like you have in your head. (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. Uh, Tell me about husband then. So he, he sold the business. What type of, uh, guidance did he give you as, as you went into private practice as a former business owner? Did, was he kind of that, that person that helped you out in that, in that realm? He did somewhat, but he's in internet advertising. And so Uh, there's just not a lot of crossover there. Way Um, different than what you and I do. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. He's not in finances and all that kind of thing. And, um, and his business partner was the person who did a lot of the, the business money, uh, finances kind of stuff. Sure. So, um, yes, he definitely helped me in terms of Google ads and, you know, all that kind of thing, which was immensely, um, immensely helpful, but not as much with the financial stuff. Gotcha. That's okay. We still love him anyway. <laughs> He's a good guy. There you go. Speaking of family, so we are recording this a few days after Thanksgiving, and we we had talked uh, offline about Thanksgiving and what we did. You did a lot more travel and a lot more cooking than I did, but uh, as, as we're talking about the microbiome of the body and and how to do food the right way, uh, I have a couple more questions for you just just around the holidays, just around food in general. If you're down for it, sure. So as we come into holiday eating, uh, a lot of people stress eat right a lot of people eat with the 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 idea of hey i'm around family and we're gonna drink and we're gonna have a good time and and other people eat because they're alone they aren't around their family and and all those types of things so uh what are some holiday tips around eating that that you would give to people uh from a health standpoint you know as as they go into let's say the christmas holiday and they're going to be preparing food what are some do's and some don'ts uh, for, for the microbiome and for the, bu- for the body? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I recommend to people is um, fiber cookies. 
And especially if you know you're going to a big holiday meal and you're trying to watch the amount of calories that you're taking in, uh, eating a fiber supplement before you walk out the door makes you already feel full when you combine it with a big glass of water. Uh So I am a huge proponent of Metamucil fiber cookies because it tastes like a cookie and there's minimal calories in it and you're getting 10 grams of fiber and we need to be eating between 25 and 30 grams of fiber every day. And most of us are getting between 10 and 15 grams. So adding that additional 10 grams in a cookie form Mm -hmm. already is boosting your fiber and it's making you feel like you have a treat. It's also something that you can throw in your back pocket or your purse when you're doing holiday shopping and you need a little snack. So you need a little something in your stomach because you're starting to get hungry, um, but you really need to finish finding the rest of those socks that you need for grandma. Um, then that's something that you can eat easily without being tempted to go over and get the brownie. Um, the other thing that I think is really helpful around the holidays is to just take smaller portions. Mm-hmm. Use a smaller plate and then fill it up with smaller amounts of food. Um, research shows, especially around sweets, that after the first bite or two, the, the pleasure, the dopamine hit that you get from eating that sweet thing goes much, much further down than you'd expect. It's kind of a precipitous drop. You get all this pleasure from the first couple of bites and then you know it peters off. So you don't need a huge piece of pie. You need a little sliver that then you eat really slowly and paying attention to the way the food feels in your mouth and the sweetness and the crunch or the the flavor, the, the cherries or the pumpkin or whatever it is that you're enjoying, really focusing on that will give you the pleasure. You don't feel like you're being, um, you know, denied sweets or anything like that, but you're, you're cutting down on the number of uh, sweets that you're putting into your system, which then of course influences your microbiome, you know, whatever you fertilize grows. So yeah. yeast likes to, likes to eat sugar. So when you eat a lot of sugar, that's what grows in your system. Um, so cutting back on the sugar in that way really is very helpful. There's a lot of psychology that goes into eating. It seems like, I mean, it, as I was asking that question, that was, I put my own question back into my head as I was asking a question is like holiday stress, uh, being around family and, and kind of the, the cumbersomeness that comes with being with a, a large group of people or vice versa. You, you know, it's the, if you're alone, you know, you're not with a lot of people. There's a lot of different psychological factors that come into all those situations and eating seems to kind of uh, reduce that. Is is that a fair yeah. assessment? And so I like your idea of yeah. uh, the smaller portions because in my mind, when when you were saying that, I was like, well, that might help out with that food baby or that 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 food coma that I feel after I eat a giant plate of food on Thanksgiving. Uh, yeah. Just doing smaller portions. The smaller plate is a great idea because psychologically, you have a smaller plate, but you fill that thing up. Your brain sees a really full plate that gets excited to eat all that food. It's just a, it's just a much smaller portion. So it's a good idea. I'm going to start serving small plates at at Christmas. We'll see what my family says. And the other, that's really important for sweets in particular, right? Don't take a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and sit down with it and a spoon on the couch. Take Mm -hmm. the extra few moments to put it in a little bowl and make one scoop to put it in the bowl, which then looks like it's full. And then you have just the one scoop and you don't mindlessly just keep eating while you're watching the movie. Solid advice. Solid advice. <laughs> That's awesome. Not from experience at all. I never do that myself. <laughs> <laughs> what's your what's your go-to Ben and Jerry's that you have one scoop of? 
Mm, American Dream Cone is my fave. Ooh, that's a good one. I'm I the, like ice cream uh, with the all the tracks. stuff in it. Oh, not a bad one either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. throw the chocolate and the caramel in there. You bet. <laughs> all right, what is up next uh, for Cena Smith in, in 2024? You, you've gotten all the degrees. You're out speaking. Uh, you're medical director. You're, you're doing all of these things. What's the next big thing? Are, are you doing, are you writing literature? Are you, do you have a big talk coming up? What, what's the big thing for you? Um, I have two big written things that are coming out. Let's hear them. Um, the first is a book that should be out in the next couple of weeks. It's really, really, really close to being done. It's love called this. Understanding Acupuncture. And um, because I love to talk to people and I'm a hardcore extrovert, I end up having lots and lots of chats with people on the airplane, you know, uh, in an elevator, all that kind of thing. And people have so many questions about acupuncture. And so after teaching it for many years, both in academic settings and also in acupuncture schools and talking to people about it on planes and stuff like that, I decided to put it together in a book. So understanding acupuncture should be out um, probably not next week, but the week after. So just in time for holidays and stuff. And uh, we'll put in the show notes, maybe where a link where people can, um, can sign up to, to be on a list to hear about it or, you know, understanding acupuncture by with my name should be on uh, Amazon and, you know, all the places where you buy books. Awesome. Are you gonna have um, a website for it though, as well, then, like an independent website to sell it? Yes. So Cena Smith MD is my main website. And if you just go to the section on books, there's a link right there as well. Yeah. All right. Listeners buy it there. We don't need to give Jeff Bezos at Amazon any more money. <laughs> give it, <laughs> buy it straight from Cena. That's the way to do it. What okay. What's what's item number two that's coming up? Um, and then the other thing is that I've been leading a task force for several years now um, that was commissioned by the American Society of Acupuncturists and the Society for Acupuncture Research to write um, kind of the, the state of acupuncture in the United States. And so this has been a, a fantastic collaborative effort. I've just had a great team working with me and we're meeting this Friday and hopefully we're hammering out the last set of edits and sending it off for publication. So that should be out in the next couple of months. And our intended title is the state of acupuncture in the United States. Um, but I can't talk about which journal it's going to go into um, because that's not legal. legal. We have to go through the peer review process and all that sort of thing first. For but sure. that will also be blasted all over my website and other places whenever it comes out. That is super exciting. We'll get all that info from you offline and, and we'll certainly share it on, on the Doctors and Dollars website as well. Uh, I was going to end with that, but now I'm just curious because you said, you know, years of meeting people in the airport or people coming up and asking you questions. Has anybody ever just walked up to you uh, knowing who you are or after a, a brief conversation, figuring out what you do as it relates to acupuncture and say, hey, do you have some needles with you? Like, I really have a lower back issue can you i'll lay down on the airport floor and and you just pop these needles in me has that ever happened so i i may have gotten some needles out on the plane and treated somebody who was really really sick and vomiting or i may have occasionally done some manual manipulation on people in an airport um i have i have gotten to the point where i don't need needles as much anymore. I can mm -hmm. manipulate things with my hands now. So um, like I was dancing a couple of weeks ago and the person that I was dancing with had a pull in his groin and it was mm -hmm. making it hard for him to dance. 
And so while we were dancing, I manipulated his shoulder to take away the groin pull. Um, so it's, it's that kind of thing. When you start doing integrative medicine and you're really pulling from all this different stuff that, you know, you, you don't, you're not limited to needles anymore. So many connection points that you would never know about. Exactly. Let me, let me just, <laughs> let me just jerk on your shoulder a little bit to take away your groin pain. So, <laughs> so exciting. Well, it's been a pleasure, Dr. Smith, to, to have you on here. Uh, I learned a ton. I know our listeners will as well. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing the book. And, and when that comes out, I'm definitely going to get a copy of it. Uh, acupuncture is just something that's always interested me. Uh, integrative medicine, functional medicine. Now I have to learn some more about culinary medicine because now you've got that in my brain. Uh, so it's just been super exciting, super enlightening to have you on today. I, I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nate, for having me. It's been a real pleasure and happy holidays, everybody. Hey everyone, as we wrap up today's episode, I want to talk about the second opinion. As most of our listeners are physicians, you guys know the importance of having another medical professional's insight for a patient's treatment plan. But have you ever considered having a second opinion on your financial plan? Or have you simply trusted your financial advisor that they've already leveraged every strategy that your family needs to be 100% on track to meet your financial goals? That's why for my Doctors and Dollars listeners, each Wednesday, I block off three time slots, an hour each, to provide a free second opinion of their financial plan. During this hour, we'll reevaluate your financial goals and your risk tolerance, we'll ensure tax mitigation strategies are in place, and ultimately give you confidence with your financial outlook, because that is what drives a happy home, a happy marriage, and peace of mind. These three spots each Wednesday do fill up fast. Send me an email at nate at grandvision.co or head over to www.grandvision.co backslash second opinion to fill out a quick form about you and schedule a time for us to meet. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope the rest of your week is abundant.